This is the Yada Yada Podcast, where we get to the heart of the Christian sexual ethic with biblical truths and real talk about sex, purity, and relationships. We're your hosts, Ashley and Amber from Across My Heart Ministries. Hey, everyone, and welcome to episode five of the Yada Yada Podcast. We're halfway through. We are. That's true. And this is kind of a, like, our halfway point. A, an important episode. Sort it of is. the hinge pin episode. Yeah, because, where we've been and where we're going. Yep, where we've been, where we're going. Last week, we talked about the history of the sexual revolution to really see how we got to where we are today as a society. It got a little dark and depressing, yeah. not going to lie. <laughs> no, it did. In regards to our views on sexuality. So we really kind of looked at the past 100 years or so to see in recent history how how our mindset towards sex as a as a culture and society has really changed and been transformed and been affected by what's going on in the world. And we kind of ended the episode and we were like, wow, that was dark and, and a little bit hopeless. And and we're like, but guess what? We have Jesus, so we have hope. And there's a way forward. And there is a way forward. And today we actually want to talk about that sexual revelation. Mm. That scripture gives us. See what we did there? Last week we talked about the sexual revolution. Today we're going to talk about God's sexual revelation. revelation. And we're going to look at God's good design for sexuality. Emphasis on good. Yep. Emphasis on the good design. So what does the Bible have to say about sex? What is the purpose of sex? What is the purpose of our of our sexuality? How do we kind of live that out as Christians? Yeah. And then that's really going to kind of set the stage for the rest of our episodes for this season because we're going to get more into just how sex is a holistic thing. We're going to break that all down mm-hmm. in future episodes and kind of ending with the season with how we apply that to our daily lives. Right. How do we live that out in practical ways? Yeah. So that's kind of where we're going. And God speaks a lot about sexuality in the Bible. So we have a lot of things to talk about. We have a lot of revelation. And we've given us a lot of revelation. We have a lot to cover. And not only does God speak a lot about sex throughout the pages of Scripture, he wasted no time in addressing it. Because if you flip over your Bible to the very first book in Genesis, the very first chapter, Genesis chapter 1, what is the very first thing that he says to man? Be fruitful and multiply. <laughs> the very first thing. Yeah. Genesis one twenty eight. Yep. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and every creature that crawls upon the earth. God doesn't just command us to have sex. He blesses it. He says, it says he blessed them and said to them, he blessed sex between a man and his wife. And his command says to, to subdue the earth, to rule over it. Don't let it rule over you. Ooh, that is good. Don't let it rule over you. And in application to our topic, don't let our desires rule, rule over us. Yeah. Rather than being restrictive and depressing, God's design for sexuality is good. The boundaries that he's established for sexuality, the boundaries that are part of his design are actually meant to help us flourish. 
to bless us, just like he blessed Adam and Eve in the garden. And so we can see throughout the pages of scripture that when you have a biblical sexual ethic, it's actually a positive sexual ethic. You will Mm. think highly of the human body. You will think highly of sexuality. You will see that sex is something that God created as a good thing to be honored and cherished within the covenant marriage. And he created each one of us as sexual beings, our femininity, our masculinity, reflecting him in a world that so desperately needs to see his image. It's beautiful, really, the way that the Bible paints a picture of what it means to be male and female and how our sexuality can honor God and actually be a blessing to us. And this way of the Bible talks about sexuality would have been countercultural, not just, you know, today, but yeah, even in, in the time in the time that the Bible was, you know, originally written and they were originally circulating the first copies, you know, the Romans uh, would really have treated people as objects yeah as objects really dehumanizing them yeah you think about the way that romans it was very common in their culture to purchase people um for slavery but also for sex acts um, purchasing them abusing them and christianity actually gave people the courage to say no i am not damaged goods I am not something to be bought and sold. I am redeemed. I know my identity. And so no longer would Christians feel the need to participate in the common coercive sex acts in the society or the forced marriages Mm -hmm. that were part of the social standard at the time. The Christian sexual ethic actually um, is one that's empowered by human dignity, being created in the image of God, knowing where your identity comes from. And because our identity is in Christ, we are empowered by who he says we are. Yeah. And so by forbidding men to fulfill their sexual appetites outside of marriage with, you know, the sex slaves and the prostitutes or even other men that was really common during the Roman times. Mm Mm-hmm. By doing that, by forbidding those things outside of marriage, the Bible was actually saying that all of a man's erotic desire, all of his affection, all of his sexual energy should be focused on his wife, Hmm. should be within the marriage covenant, should be channeled towards that love. And so this was, this boundary that was established around sexuality was actually a dramatic social statement on the status of women on the status of marriage, on the importance of a wife. Yeah, in a culture that didn't value those things. Right. Because the Bible has always honored human dignity in every culture throughout all of time. And it'll always be countercultural. Yeah. Because the world will always end up demeaning and devaluing people. Mm-hmm. Even when it tries to say they're the ones that are pro-women or pro-sex and pro, you know, all these things. It's like actually God's version of sex, God's version of what it means to be male and female, that elevates Mm. and values Mm -hmm. human dignity more than any other cultural narrative possibly can. 
So we see that time and time again. We see that in our world today. We saw that in the Roman time. And as sexual beings, if we're thinking about God's design for sexuality, you know, we know that a design has a purpose. Yeah. And so it's not just enough to say, well, God created sex, so we follow his rules. Well, I mean, I guess that is enough. But that... (laughs) But we can see more beyond that. Yes, because that's not, God doesn't just say, uh, because I said so. Very rarely in scripture. I Mm -hmm. mean, there are times where we just have to take God at his word. But when it comes to sexuality, he's actually given us the reasons. Hmm. Yeah. That of why his ways are the best ways. And that is very gracious of him. He doesn't have to do that. It's true. But he's let us in to get like a little sneak peek, a little preview, a little bit of a, you know, fuller picture and understanding of why he created us as sexual beings. But wait a second. Are we talking about the purpose of sex or sexuality? Um, Both. Yes. Sex and sexuality. While sexuality is a much broader term and it includes... um, you know, our feelings, our thoughts, our attractions, our behaviors, it really can't be completely separated from sex. In order to have the act of sex, we bring in the reality that we are created as sexual beings. And so when we have this conversation, while there is a distinction between the two, it's important to remember that they're not completely separate. The only way that we can have the act of sex is as sexual beings. And so there are truths for all of us to learn as male and female. And if you're listening to these purposes behind our sexuality, yes, the first two, and as you're listening to these purposes of sexuality, the first two really will speak more directly to the act of sex, but keep listening because the third point is really going to give the bigger picture of sexuality of how sex and sexuality work together. Scripture actually tells us the purposes behind sexuality. And Amber, I'm going to do your favorite thing. Just like I had the three C's of purity, now I'm going to have the three P's of sexuality. Wow. Your seminary professors are going to be so proud. The thing is, is that's not even something I learned in seminary. <laughs> it's actually something I think I learned in a speech class in high school. Oh, my goodness. So, Well, then you're going to make Mrs. Smith proud. I was going to say, I think it was Mrs. Smith. <laughs> if she's listening to this, <laughs> these are my three points with alliteration. Um, so the first is that sex is for procreation. Now, I'm starting with that because it's probably the most obvious. Mm -hmm. So again, with this first one, you might think, wait, isn't that just the purpose of sex, not sexuality? Yes, but the act of sex, it can't be divorced from the reality of our sexuality. Because it's only a male and a female together that can create life. It's part of our sexual design. Sex is important because it brings life into the world. It is literally the only way that life is brought into this world. And the beautiful part of that is that God chooses to create human life through human intimacy, through an Mm -hmm. act of love. And so life is created out of love. Mm. That's his design for it. Of course, there are instances 
where life is created and it's a result of abuse, mm. rape, and love is not present. But that life is still an act of love because God choosing to create a life is him loving that person into existence. And so life is always an act of love. It's God's love for us that he would choose to create us. Mm. And he has chosen to use sexuality or sex, the act of sex, which is meant to be an act of love yeah, and human intimacy to do that. And so it really captures, I think, the beauty and the heart of life being an act of love. Of course, sex doesn't always result in procreation. And in the instances where we long for children, but children never come, families that are trying for years, a husband and a wife, to have a child, and they cannot procreate, we know the reality that infertility, it's hard, it's painful, Mm -hmm. and it's not the way God designed it to be. Mm. And the pain we experience in infertility, and we see people experience in infertility, um, it's evidence of that. Yeah, it's evidence that it's not the way it's supposed to be. God created sex to be used as the very foundation of procreation and the building of a family through this close, intimate act. Because a family is meant to be close and intimate relational bond. Mm. Yeah. With other humans. And so marriage is the only proper context for which making love is making that life because you're building a life together, a family together that is supposed to be these bonds of relational love. And that's one of the things that makes procreation so beautiful is the fact that God allows us to participate in creation with him. And that's something that Satan can't do. Satan can only steal and twist and warp what's already been created. But he doesn't get to participate in creation. We see that procreation is part of God's intention for sexuality. And so same-sex unions, polyamorous unions, they lack the inherent ability to procreate. And that might seem like, well... That's just an obvious statement. But I mean, think about it. That is a reflection of the purpose of sexuality that cannot be fulfilled in same-sex unions, polyamorous unions. But in the biblical marriage union, we are invited to participate with God in the act of creation through the act of sexual love. And how appropriate that that is the foundation of families, and the foundation of life, intimacy, and love. I think that's beautiful. Yeah, it really is beautiful. And a good, a good first, a good first point for the purpose of sexuality. So sex, sex is for procreation. Sex is also pleasurable. So pleasurable being our second P, not only is it okay to enjoy the context sex in the context of marriage but god created it 
to be that way. Yes. To be enjoyed. People sometimes, <laughs> I think, feel like, wait, am I allowed to enjoy this? Like, yes, yes that's a good part of he, God's design. He created it to be enjoyed within marriage. And he actually has a whole book of the Bible that describes in great detail how to make great love in the marriage bed. If you haven't, um, or I would say... Uh, Reading Songs of Solomon is a great marriage devotional. Yes. Great thing to do with your spouse. My husband and I, Joseph and I, we actually read it on our honeymoon. Did you? Yep. And I've I've told people, if you're a newly engaged couple um, and you're planning right now your, you know, your upcoming wedding and your honeymoon, like make that part of your plan to read through the Song of Solomon as inspiration for lovemaking as you're learning to make love. Yeah, and also you you may, you probably have read Songs of, of, of Solomon before, especially if you've read through the entire Bible, but it takes on a little different meaning after you're married, and particularly in those early days when you're figuring everything out together. Yes, the sexual euphemisms that are there and also the imagery of the Edenic ideal. Like, they're in a garden. It's garden language that's used. Mm. And so it's that true intimacy, that shamelessness, you know, that um, Adam and Eve would have experienced together of being truly known and intimate in the garden. And so I, I think it's beautiful that so much of the imagery that's used is garden language. And I I don't think that's by chance. Although I have to say one of my favorite phrases uh, about sexual pleasure is actually found in Genesis 26 verse 8 when Isaac travels into the enemy territory because of uh, the famine in their land. And he is trying to hide the fact that Rebecca is his wife. He's kind of doing the same thing that his father Abraham had done, mm-hmm. lying and saying that it was it's she's his sister. And he's doing it out of, out of fear that they will kill him and, and take her away. But the whole ruse is off when Abimelech catches them from the upstairs window. And that's the verse in Genesis 26, verse 8. It says, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of the window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. He recognized they were husband and wife because they were laughing? Hmm. Hmm. Seems like there may have been a little more going on there. (laughs) Did he just tell her like a really good joke and, you know... (laughs) He's like, wow, they're husband and wife. Like, no, I think they were laughing for certain reasons because they were enjoying each other because sex is pleasurable and we're supposed to enjoy and have fun with our sexuality. And God not only allows for that, he encourages that. And, you know, I think this is... (laughs) Again, another obvious thing. Like, we probably didn't have to tell you sex is for procreation and sex is for pleasure. But it is reassuring to hear that that's part of God's design. Yeah. That that's not the world hijacking sex. Yeah. That's how God created it. He Mm -hmm. created it not to be an evil that's avoided, but a good that's protected Mm -hmm. within the bounds of marriage. You know, like like a fire. I once heard this uh, analogy that fire, you know, it when it's contained, 
it provides warmth. Mm-hmm. And we have we look at it in a beautiful fireplace, roast our marshmallows over the fire it's pit. Idyllic. It's idyllic. But when it doesn't have boundaries, it destroys everything in its path. The same thing, fire. But it can burn things to the ground. Mm. And that's like sex, right? It's like fire. It's hot. (laughs) (laughs) No, but it's good when it's within boundaries, Uh when it's within God's design. It's idyllic. But when we think that we need to let it loose and be free, it actually destroys everything in its path. So sex is for procreation. Sex is for pleasure. And according to God's design, sex is for portraying the intimacy of God's love. And I think this is the one that the church misses. This is the one that isn't so obvious. This is the one that really captures the full beauty of our sexuality. Because if we go back to the very first time that God blessed sex, God blessed Adam and Eve. He said to them, be fruitful and multiply. This verse comes right after it says that we were made in his image, Genesis 127. And when it says we are made in his image, it says we were male and female. It speaks to our sexuality. Now, do you think it's because our sexuality maybe tells us something about God, his image? I think so. I think so. I think it is a little bit of, I shouldn't say a little bit. I think it's a mystery as to exactly how it does that sometimes. Um, But everything in God's creation reflects him brings glory to him somehow it does and our sexuality is is no exception so we have to ask what does it tell us about god Mm -hmm. and yeah and i i think that you know we look at it sometimes as a burden because we have these desires and as christians we know the context which god has created for them to be fulfilled in and it can be hard. It can be hard, especially if you have um, a history of sexual sin, just struggling with that. And or tr- even even as a single person, yeah, even always as a- hearing it's within marriage, it's within marriage. You're like, but I'm not married. Yeah, it can be hard to, to be patient. <laughs> and it can be easy to be like, God, just take away my sexual desire just take it away so that i don't have to i don't have to struggle with it anymore but no that's that's not what we actually want we don't we don't really want that because our sexuality tells us it does something about god and like you said it's a mystery but yet it's not all mystery it's not all mystery because there's parts that, that have been revealed yes and there's the parts that haven't been revealed and we're going to talk about the revelation, the part that has been revealed, the part we can understand because of his word. And so, you know, open your Bibles with us. Unless if you're driving in the car right now, then just listen to us read the verses to you. Um, But we're going to be hopping all around scripture to unpack that revelation because there are really three things that sexuality tells us about God's love. And we're going to be um, talking about 
how and why sexuality shows us those that beautiful picture of his love for his bride. This love story of God for his church, for his bride, it is a story that is written throughout all of scripture. From Genesis to Revelation, there is imagery time and time again of us being compared to his, his bride, that we are the bride of Christ, that he is our groom, that he has gone to prepare a place for us, and he's coming back for our wedding day. That imagery is used throughout scripture, and, and the marriage that, that we share here on this earth is to be a picture of that love. Mm-hmm. That he has for his bride. Ephesians 5 verse 31 to 32 says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery Mm -hmm. is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. God uses sexuality to reveal something about himself, his love. And it tells us these three things. It tells us that his love is exclusive, that his love is intimate, and that his love is unifying. Exclusive, intimate, and unifying. God's love is exclusive. And what do I mean by that? Well, uh, God does not like to share our love. Exodus 20 verse 3 tells us that God is a jealous God, that we are to have no other idols before him. We are to have no idols, no gods before him. He wants our whole heart, our complete devotion. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's powerful. I mean, it's it's powerful to know that he has that focused love towards us, but also because of the imagery, because of the, I thought of another P, because of the picture picture <laughs> because of the picture that is portrayed oh. i get bonus points um with looking at the the bride and the groom you know mentality there in a marriage our love is like that like our love is not to be shared with right. any other right. at least not that that romantic love i mean obviously we still have other people in our lives that we love in different ways but that romantic love is meant to, to be, be exclusive exclusive between a husband and a wife. And so we see it here portrayed with God yeah. towards his bride, that exclusive love for his people. Which is why idolatry is compared to idolatry. Idolatry in scripture is compared to adultery, that we're cheating on God, that we're prostituting ourselves when we have other gods. Jeremiah 2.20 uses this language. It says we prostitute ourselves when we deny that covenant with him. Hmm. And in Revelation, in the church of Thyatira, when the sexual sin is mentioned, it's mentioned right alongside idolatry. Sexual immorality is mentioned alongside idolatry in scripture because of the symbolism of God's love for his church, like the bride of Christ, that we're to be exclusive when when we share sex with anybody other than our spouse, that is no longer a picture of God's love. That becomes a broken image of God's love. Mm. It's, it's like an idol. Yeah. It doesn't reflect him anymore. It's, it, it becomes something else. It's a counterfeit version of sexuality. It's no longer the covenant love that we are to enjoy, the yada sexuality. 
that we mentioned in the very first episode, which really sort of transitions and emphasizes that intimacy of his love. So the, you know, exclusiveness and the fact that he's, you know, he's set on his bride and we, if we, you know, exit out of that, that marriage relationship and look for sexual satisfaction elsewhere, you know, we have that broken image of God's love and that harms that intimacy Right. That is supposed to be protected because it's supposed to be exclusive. Yeah. And so our capacity to love intimately, to know deeply and to feel another heartbeat against ours is this human experience that's designed by God. And it's meant to be fulfilled in the in the safety of marriage. Yeah. And I mean, and that's the that's the intent. Now obviously that's not always the reality, unfortunately, for people. And there are people who aren't in marriages that feel that way, <laughs> which is really, really tragic and really sad. And just but that's a, because sin has affected the relational dynamic in some way. Yeah. But yeah. God's design has been broken in some way if that's not true for you. Yeah. But that's the, that's the intention mm-hmm. is that there's supposed to be this place of safety to be intimate with another person, knowing that there's that covenant, that promise that you are to spend the rest of your life together. There's this groundwork laid for you to really know and be known yeah. by one another. So the first time that sex is mentioned in the Bible, and we, we've mentioned this before, but we're going to mention it again because it's one of our favorite things to mention. <laughs> it's the name of our podcast. It's the name of our podcast is when Adam lay with his wife Eve. And the Hebrew word yada is to know and be known and be deeply respected. And that's what Adam and Eve shared. That's what they shared in this verse. Adam isn't just, you know laying in there doing nothing <laughs> and so they're not and, just and, and eve not just adam i should say adam yeah. and eve they're not just Isaac laying and there Rebecca doing weren't just laughing uh, adam and eve weren't just laying <laughs> this isn't just talking they had it going on about a physical it's not just talking about a physical connection to truly be known and understood it's a a mingling of the souls mm. and it's a, a uh what do I want to say? It's an experiential knowing. It's not just like to know facts, but to experience them. I heard Ugh. it explained one time that, you know, you can know, like when you're driving through and you know you know the speed limit in a certain area and you're like, hey, I know I'm supposed to be going 35 miles an hour through here. And then one day you get pulled over. Mm. Now you know. <laughs> The speed limit is supposed to be 35 miles an hour. Yeah. Like there's this like I can have the head knowledge, but now I have the experience. Yeah. And I know uh, because I was. Well, and it's the difference between knowing of someone and knowing someone. Like I can know yeah. of a celebrity. Like, oh, yeah, I, I know that person. I know who that person is. But do I really know them? No. You know. Yeah. I know. You know of facts. Them. You know, know of facts, them. them. You know. You might you might know how they portray themselves, <laughs> but you don't have an experiential knowing. And we want to be known. We want to be experienced. And I remember the first time um, I really felt known by my husband when we were falling in love, and um, I just I 
I knew that he had been paying attention. It was our very first Valentine's Day. Um, and I, I love crafts. And I, I love the song Walking on Sunshine. And he had handcrafted me this frame with these little cutout uh, paper daisies. And uh, he wrote the, the lyrics of the song in the picture frame. And he mailed it to me. And when I opened that package, I just remember being completely overcome with just this sense of really love. Like this, this guy, he, he is paying attention to me. He knows me. And later that song became the recessional at our wedding and the little daisies that he had cut out on the frame um, were my favorite flower. Those became our wedding flower. We all want to be known like that. And the beautiful reality that, the, that this intimacy reminds us of. We don't have to wait for romantic love here on this earth to experience being known like that. Mm. Because you know who loves us like that. You know who pays attention to every hair on our head. I do. God. Yes. <laughs> God loves us like that. He doesn't just know our favorite color and our favorite flower and our favorite song. He knows us more intimately than anyone could. And so this word yada appears over 900 times in the Old Testament, um, but it's not always in relation to sex. It's in relation to the deep knowing that's to be had in the most intimate of relationships, and that is our covenant relationship with God. Mm-hmm. That God knows us this way, and he invites us to know him that way, to know him intimately. Like he knew Adam and Eve when they were walking through the garden with no shame. That God, he sees all of us, he knows all of us, and he still loves us. Because Christ Jesus has made that relationship with a holy God possible. That's such a beautiful picture of God's love and how that translates to the love between a husband and a wife. We also recognize in this intended design that God has that we also have a very real enemy and he wants to ruin. <laughs> he wants to ruin that design. And he he wants to offer a counterfeit version mm. of what God has designed to be this beautiful, intimate thing, um, this beautiful, intimate encounter and, and relationship between a husband and a wife that they have in sex. He sees what God has created that reflects our deep intimacy that we have with God. And we can have that, and that we can have that deep inter- intimacy with Him. And then He's 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 spun a counterfeit, mm-hmm. a counterfeit that's merely physical, so that we wind up feeling alone and not truly known by the other. And the word is shakav. Genesis nineteen thirty two. We read about how Lot's daughters lay with him, and it can be kind of confusing because in the English 
it just uses the word light. And depending on the translation that you're using, but the NIV historically has used the word lay, both when it talks about Adam lay with his wife Eve, and then Lot's daughters lay with Lot. And it can be like, wait a second, that's the same word. So is the same thing going on? And if it was, then that could definitely be a little discouraging uh, for the a, a discouraging tone which just set our biblical and build our biblical sexual ethic but it's not the same word and does not have the same meaning so in in, in the encounter between lot and his daughters it is the word shakav which can be translated to mean an exchange of bodily fluids so just this really just purely physical thing, exchanging bodily fluids, lacking all the deep intimacy that is wrapped up in the word yada. So it's not an intimate exchange. It's not this thing that for the way that God designed it to be. It's a counterfeit version that Satan sells to continue having people chase after something that won't ever fulfill them. They will chase after sexual encounter after sexual encounter, trying to satisfy that desire to know and be known, because that's how we were created by God, to know and be known. But it's going to come up short every time because there's a context which God designed sex to be enjoyed. So with Shekhov, you're a slave to circumstances, to feelings, to desire, but with Yadah, there's that room for true acceptance, for knowing and being known. That's the vision that is cast in the design that God has made for marriage and for the marriage bed and for the sexual exchange that happens between husband and wife. The, this intimacy is unifying, right? Mm-hmm. Because you're fully known, you're fully understood. There's nothing secret or hidden. And God's love is like that. It is unifying. It creates a covenant bond. And our sexual love, therefore, as a picture of God's love, is also unifying. It's covenantal. It's a covenant love. And that's what takes place when you get married. It unites two as one flesh. It doesn't matter, you know... Um, if you think like, oh, you know, what's the difference between a commitment and a covenant? Like I'm really committed to something. Like I live with this person. Um, we've been together for 10 years. So can't we have sex? Like we're really committed. But a commitment is not the same as a covenant. A covenant is something that God is part of. Hmm. God is not in your commitment. He's in your covenant where he binds two together. What God brings together, let no man separate. And that's what makes marriage so special is that it's secure. It's more than a commitment. It is a lasting covenant. Because as we talked about in our theology, the body episode, yeah. you can't divide, you know, like your physical body from, you know, saying, oh, well, that's just my body and and this is the rest of me my internal sense of self you know my spirit my soul no when christ died for you he died for all of you when christ created you he created all of you mm-hmm. it's a theological term called conditional unity but essentially it captures this 
this truth that we are body and soul mm-hmm. that are meant to be united. And when we unite in marriage with another, you're giving your whole life to that person. Just like when you enter into a covenant relationship with God, you're giving your whole life to God because he wants all of you. I think a couple um, verses yeah. that capture this idea that your sexuality is is more than just about your body, but it's... More than just physical. Yeah, it's it's all of you are um, these verses in Corinthians, first and second. Yeah, so in 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 20, we read, Flee from sexual immorality. For all other sins a man can, commits are outside his body, but he who can, sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? Mm. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. And then in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 2 through 3, we read, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. I think that last verse is especially clear (laughs) that God wants all of us. That he wants to present us as his pure bride on the coming wedding day of his return. Because when Jesus returns, for some that will be, will be judgment day. But for us, it will be our wedding day. The word apocalypse that was used uh, in, in Greek is the word, it means unveiling. It's the word apocalypse. Apocalypsis. And so when John wrote the book of Revelation, the word that was used in wedding ceremonies at that time for the moment in the program when the bride's veil was lifted, that was the unveiling, that was the apocalypse. And so, wow, that's so interesting because we hear the word apocalypse and we think of end of the world, coming judgment and doom, doom and gloom. But a bride's veil being lifted is the apocalypse. Uh-huh. I think movies have also sort of like affected our like we think of po- post cuz as Christians we know that the end is good it's good news for us. Yeah, it's our wedding day. But I think that the world like our groom is coming narrative has sort of clouded our judgment to think of it as like this scary because of all the post-apocalyptic movies and things that are out there well, yeah like, and think tribulation of it as scary thing. You know, there are scary things coming. Mm-hmm. But not for those who are secure in Christ. Because we know where where we're going. And he Jesus is coming. He's coming to lift our veil, to bring us home to the place he's prepared. And really that, that is our sexual revelation. That is how the story ends. That's how the book of Revelation ends. And that is, I think, the most beautiful picture. Something that we can anticipate and look forward to. Even if, you know, listening to that verse, you may have been like, pure virgin pride. I I don't relate to any of those words. 
They don't, they don't resonate with me for whatever variety of reasons. You might be thinking that we're talking about perfection, that we have to be perfect, this perfect, uh, perfect gift, <laughs> or perfect, I'm going to use the word bride again, the perfect bride, <laughs> ready for Christ. And, you know, we talked about this in previous episode, but we have to reiterate it again because it's just so important that God's not asking for perfection. Purity is not about our performance and our perfection. It is God who makes us pure. And he's asking that we live into that love. Mm -hmm. It's not about behavior modification, how good I can act, how I can how how much I can strive to be this perfect version of something that I think is when I imagine that apocalypse moment, like mm. striving for that in my own strength. But it's about heart transformation. Yeah. It's not ours, it's his. Mm. On our own, Isaiah says that we're filthy rags. We've mentioned that. We talked about that in a previous episode. But with his purity, we are dressed in robes, white robes of (laughs) righteousness. And we're ready. We're ready for our wedding day Mm. because of what he has done for us and what we are trusting him for. And we're ready. We're dressed in those robes of righteousness, like you said. I remember I remember picking out my dress for my wedding day. Me too. And it's such an exciting experience for any any bride out there. You may remember that. You may be looking forward to that moment. And you think, well, when when will I know that it's like the one? And for me, it was the third dress I tried on. I looked at myself in the mirror. They put the veil on me. And I was just like, oh, I feel like a bride. Mm-hmm. And I had pictured my wedding day from the time... I was a little girl, like most little girls do, and I was going to look perfect. I was going to be that perfect bride, like you said, Amber. (laughs) And so I had the perfect dress that I was going to wear. I was going to be perfect. But then I woke up on my wedding day, and I had a giant stress zit (laughs) of the middle. It was like right in the middle of my forehead, too. I remember that. And it was like... I think I had to help you cover it up a few times. You Yes, you covered it with makeup, but it was like not even a side sweat bang could cover the thing it was just it was protruding (laughs) (laughs) through the skin and you know I I was wanting to look perfect and I didn't and you know that that could have ruined my day that could have just been the thing that could have ruined my day but you know what it didn't because when I saw my groom at the end of that aisle and I saw his love for me beaming through his smile I knew my flaws. I knew my failures. I knew I still had that giant zit on my forehead. But he wasn't looking at those. When I was walking towards him down that aisle, I was walking towards his love. Hmm. And his love was the thing that truly made me glow. Yeah. That is, that's what made me beautiful on our wedding day. It was our love for each other. It's not about our perfection. It's about God's love for us. And it's his love that will make us ready for the apocalypse. It's amazing how our sexual experience in the covenant relationship of marriage can mirror his expression. It can mirror 
the expression of God's love. But what's more amazing is that we have a groom mm. who has given his life for us, is preparing a place for us, coming back for us, and allows us to experience his exclusive, intimate, and unifying love. We are clothed in Christ's love. Allow yourself to experience that. Allow yourself to experience his love. Mm-hmm. To actually know the love that sex is modeled after. <laughs> yep. This wonderful, intimate, exclusive, unifying love of Christ. And with that, until next time, know and be known.